0: Father, we are overwhelmed by your presence. We are so grateful to be here this morning as men and as a lady here as well. To you, to you alone, we give all the glory. We pray, Lord Jesus, that through this, your name will be glorified and, O oh God, that you will draw us closer to you, that you will have your way. Father, it is about you. It is about you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you. We exalt your name. Thank you for this opportunity just to come and sit and to hear, open our eyes to see just the greatness of you, our King. We worship you. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Leonard. And before we get started, I'm, uh, I'm grateful to be here. But we travelled with uh, Kurt and and Leonard. I don't know Leonard, but only met him in the car this morning. It's his birthday today. Aww. Happy birthday, Leonard! Bless <laughs> you. Well, this morning at uh, I think it's my first or second second time, third time maybe to be here. But um, it is an honour to just come and to share with you. I am overwhelmed by the, just the opportunity to be able to come and speak to you in this way, but just feel to start off, but he 'd like to share something of uh, the journey that we 've been on for the last 50 years. So God has been good to us or good to me and my wife. and I'll start by I don 't know who actually made the statement, he said, "One life that we live that will soon be past, only what we 've built for Jesus." Or with Jesus, that will last. You can build a life by yourself, but if you build it with Jesus, it will be one that will last into eternity. So, a person that really just impacted my life, as we were to read the Word of God, and like to share a little bit of what Paul, you know, after he met up with Jesus, and how this, this gospel impacted his life. And he said the following here in Acts, 30, Acts 20. I mean, just read here from verse 20. It says, You know how I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house, and have declared to both Jew and to Greek that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And then he said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, if only that in every city the Holy Spirit warned me that, in, that prisons and hardships are facing me however I consider my life worth nothing if only I may finish the race and have completed the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And reading this and I look at this and most of my journey has been part of this um, where God has just come and he's so overwhelmed me with this. And now, when we are prisoners of Jesus, you don't decide for yourself. When we have made a commitment to follow Jesus, nothing will ever be the same again, because He's going to take us on a journey that we uh, that will surprise us. And Paul could refer to himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And uh, during that time, you know, someone said that. You know, when Jesus came, it was the worst of times. But it was the best of times. So for Paul, he lived in a time like that where there was so much happening in his, in his age. Like what we are facing today. A lot of things are happening into our age. Some of the things we are not comfortable with. And that is what Paul grew up in. And, but he could reflect on then, you know, because they were under Roman oppression at the time. But when a Roman general would go into a into a foreign country or whatever making war and once he's on his way back from war uh, he would come back with the spoil and with the spoil that he would bring back uh, behind his chariot would be those prisoners and they would be tied up behind his chariot uh, as a display of what what the spoil looked like and some of those uh, the people would, would line up on the side of the street and they would throw all sorts of objects at the prisoners and uh, and Paul could identify with this To say that in fact I am a prisoner of Jesus Christ But not like that We are prisoners of Jesus Christ The day that we come to Jesus But in victory We walk with him not in defeat Unfortunately if we are prisoners Of the old kingdom Of the kingdom of darkness Then we will be prisoners Like what Paul referred to Where we are oh, and uh, the devil will make an, a public um, spectacle of us. Our lives will be like this. But when we are behind the chariot of Jesus, now we are down in victory. God has got a destiny for every one of us. And uh, so if we are a prisoners of Jesus Christ, then every decision that we make will be a spiritual one. Every decision. If you are in business, whatever, doesn't matter where you are as a as a prisoner of Jesus Christ, it will become a spiritual decision. Now, if Jesus is there, then the thing that often, that I'd like to just bring to our attention, quickly, if we want to just assess where we are, the thing that you love most will be the thing that will occupy your life. If it is Jesus, then we are bound up in victory. But if we are, if we are just behind that chariot, whichever one it would be, uh, that would be the thing that we will love most. As for me, I got saved on the 2nd of September, 1972. And three days after salvation, I came into ministry. And, and we haven't got time to just share with you how it happened, but God saved me in a miraculous way. Got saved, and uh, I, the next moment, I found myself preaching the gospel. I never thought that this would happen, but... On this journey, and this journey has taken me into many countries in the world and I've been able to share the gospel with areas where people have never heard the gospel. I've, I've often just prayed about this and I said, God, I want to preach this gospel where no one has ever been. Um, it's easy to go to a country where everyone is preaching the gospel. That's not an achievement. But to go where the Holy Spirit would lead you, like we heard someone mentioned it around the table this morning, um, about Peter, when you were young. You could go where you wanted to go. But when you become old, you'll go where you don't want to go. People will lead you there. But that is when we are prisoners of Jesus Christ. In victory, we will, He will lead us into those areas where we say, hey, this is not for me, but He will lead us there. So um, we will be taking into those areas. And I, I remember no, many, a number of years ago, on one of the trips... It was while the two warring parties, Renamo and Frelimo, Frelimo is still the ruling government, but the uh, Renamo soldiers were they were the they were the the opposition, and uh, you couldn't get into Mozambique at the time. The only way that we could go through Mozambique was with an escort, and we would go. uh, You could go either coming from the bottom end here, KZN, travel up north, but that was that you couldn't even. Uh, there, there wasn't even a road at the time, so the only access was coming through Mozambique from, from through Zimbabwe, at the border called Nyamapanda. and from there it's about a 300-kilometer journey to get into Malawi, and that journey, uh, you know, was split up in two, with the Zambezi as the as the actual stop, 150 k's Zambezi, and then so you had these two convoys. One would go from Yamapanda travel up to the Zambezi and the other one coming from Mwanza in Malawi traveled towards the Zambezi and they would swap over and uh, that's the way they would operate. So I uh, there were two vehicles with us uh, in that convoy. The rest were all trucks taking supplies through. It was full on war and that that first stretch of the road was all a tarmac road. So it wasn't too bad and uh, you know that was like our introduction into, into that war zone at the time. And as we got to the bridge, we met with the other party, the, the commander of the other side. And uh, when he saw the registration number, South Afric- two South African registration numbers, he started speaking in a other tongue. He, he started swearing at us and he didn't want us to be in his convoy. So um, he chased us away and... I, I said to the, my friend, and he, it was Ray Oliver, he was with me, and I said to Ray, you know, we've traveled so, so long. It's, it's a long trip to get to that point of, uh, in the trip. There's no way. We, we, you can almost smell Malawi. Uh, I'm not turning back. We're going to find our own way through this war zone. I, I'm, we're going to push through. And uh, the gentleman, in the, there were two guys in this other vehicle, and they, they overheard us, and the guy came to me and said, do you mind if we go with you? I said, no way, let's go. And uh, so we set off, started to go, but from there on it was all dirt road. We traveled for about 30 kilometers and we came to a like a, like a dip in, in the road, vegetation change, and right at the bottom there was some activity you could tell, if you, if you know what, what the military is like, so you can tell that there was something happening that, in that area, and as we got into this little, it's, there was a little uh, kind of a bridge. Um, you could see on the left-hand side, there was activity the night before. There was a vehicle, but the, this vehicle was still like smoldering. And uh, you could tell that there, and there was something. And as we got into this, right next to the road, there was some armored glass lying there. And I, I thought, hey, this will be a good souvenir. And I opened the door of my vehicle and I leaned over while the vehicle is going and I grabbed this thing. And not knowing that right from here to where Chris is, this is the contact and they're watching me in the grass. And I grabbed this and we continued. And we traveled for another about 30 kilometers to some buildings. They were all destroyed. Just part of the buildings were remaining. And out jumped about 30 of those Frelimo soldiers. Now we were arrested. And so we, they kept us for about four hours at gunpoint, and you're looking into this battle of this AK-47, and they were not too sure as to what to do with us. And, you know, you tried to preach the gospel, you try to give them food, you try to talk to them nicely, nothing. And um, after four hours, we could hear that this convoy is coming. And as the convoy arrived, the, uh, the commander saw us, and now he's even more upset because we... We 've disobeyed even what he said we 've still gone continued, and uh, now we, we, we were handed over to him, and we were escorted behind his vehicle to this military base where we were, um, had to appear for this before this military court. Ray was kept they kept they took our passports, but Ray and the other driver, the passenger from the other vehicle, they were kept in the vehicles they were going to send them back to, to Harare because that that particular convoy was manned by Zimbabwe. They, were, they joined the force, uh, the fight with Frelimo Frelimo against Renamo. So they, they were going to be sent back. But because we were the drivers, now we're standing before this military trial. And as we got into this trial, this, uh, all these officers, now they're part of the jury. And they, we were accused, first of all, that we've been collaborating with the enemy. And I said, hey, but... You know, the more we talked about this, they, they ignored it. They said, "By the way, did you did you come across that first uh, that the first contact? There was a baboon lying on the next on the side of the road, and a red flag, and there was the blood was still fresh. It was still it didn't set." And I said, "Yeah, I, I saw that the, the the contact. I saw the baboon as well." And he said, "Exactly, because that was the that was the the, the actual con the, the contact." And they, they there, was a, there was a battle, and they, and some some people were killed. And I said, how come they, they never did anything to you? I said, it's obvious. They were waiting for you. They were not waiting for me. So, but now we were collaborating, and and uh, the more we talked, the more they, the more agitated they became, and uh, after some time. He, um, he was on a, on a radio and he talked to his superiors in Arari and they could hear this conversation now they were laughing these officers about because I'm like this trophy that they've just caught and they were going to make fun and the, the guy next to me was also a South African black fellow black friend of my, not a friend of mine at the time he stood there and we could hear this conversation and he said listen We've got these guys, what must we do with them? And the message came back, you can execute them, you've done this before. And just then, that was the end of the conversation, um, he gave the order, he said, all right, prepare the firing squad. So they, they marched these guys out in front of us, there was a bit of a wall, and uh, we were going to be marched out in front of this wall, and we were going to stand there, and all these guys came, and they took their positions, they were waiting for the orders, and we were going to be marched out. And at that point of time, the guy next to me started to cry. And he said, you know, you can't do this. I've got a wife and family. And I thought, I've also got a wife and family. But there's one thing I'm not going to do. is I'm not going to allow myself to become emotional. I'm not going to cry. But the, God just came in such an incredible way. Just the presence of God came right into my life. And I was overwhelmed by this, and I started to laugh I was, I was so I was so happy at that point of time. like this officer he had his pistol with him, and I thought, he's just going to take shortcut he 's not going to wait for me to get to this firing squad. he's going to execute me himself and At that point of time, when I said this i I had this I looked at this big African sun, it started to set It was late afternoon, and I thought. This day is going to be my last day. I'm going home, and I, that made me so happy. I, I'm going home tonight, and because we escaped death that day with that um, with that ambush, first of all with the baboon, then we were kept for four hours, and now we the final thing is we at this in front of this court, and uh, so he looked at me, and the next all the officers in this jury they became very uh, very serious because now. We, we, there's no more laughing for them. Uh, what is the, the, the judge going to say? And he looked at me, and it was like God just gripped his heart, and his tears started running down his cheeks. And he said, I've done this many times. Um, how come are you different? And God turned the situation around. I started to preach the gospel. So I shared the gospel with him, and... Uh, they hand our passports back, and they said, just go. So we left, now Ray's in the vehicle, we're going up, we're about like 10 days up in, Mo- in Malawi, we travel right up north, and this one Sunday afternoon, we were on our way back, and uh, we, as we were traveling, Ray, now Ray was not in a good place, he, he really, it, was, it, took, it took something from, from out of him, and he said, Henny, why, we were going to go back a um, little bit later He said, "Any, why, why wait? Because the chance that we'll get back There's not much of a chance they, they were, They're going to really they, Something can happen on that road Can't we just get to Blantyre, get our stuff and, and go back So that we can, Monday morning We can get, get back to, the, to this border post And see our way through again As we got into I said to him, Ray, that's fine well, Let's just do it we got into Plantyre that night, and the country, that the whole city, have ran out of out of fuel. So I couldn't find fuel. I said to him, Ray, um, "It's obvious that God doesn't want us to die on a Monday. We'll have to wait for Tuesday." <laughs> uh, but we found petrol that Monday afternoon, and we started driving back. And we got to the border post, and it, it just... Uh, it, you could hear I, Ray was sleeping in the back of this 4x4 of mine, the Vaki, And uh, I was in the front seat I was lying there that night And um, I had my feet sticking out You know what it's like you know, I had my shoes on And I said, this place is so rough man. They, there are people around there They're going to steal my shoes So I took my shoes off and, the ne- and it started to rain And the next moment Someone was at my feet and they stole my socks and I, I pulled my shoes, my socks, my feet in again, and I could hear that there's a, there was a lot of activity during the course of the night. Early the next morning, you could hear some extra support vehicles coming in, and when 5 o'clock came, the convoy started, and the same commander, he was on duty. Here's this commander, as he saw us, he, he literally ran towards us, and he, I, he was so overwhelmed, I thought he was going to kiss me. <laughs> He said, you are so fortunate. Had you been here on Monday? There's no survivors on the Monday convoy. They made a contact and they were all killed. And I stood there and and, and then he said to me, but you don't need to worry today. You're going to travel behind my vehicle and I'm going to look after you. So we started to travel that day. But I stood and I said, God, if if you are with us, I'm going to live every day as if it is my last day. I, 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 I had an understanding of this, that what it's like to be behind the chariot of Jesus, that we are bound up in victory, how God will come and he will open doors. And this, is, this has been the story of our lives into many places up into Africa. But I remember that at one, one point, um, I was up in Sudan and I worked there with the military and the president of Sudan for 18 years. And uh, right in during all the war, you know, wartime and uh, involved in training military people uh, in warfare. And this, uh, this one particular trip, they would, they, they used to come, uh, manage to get a, 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 a pilot and they would fly me in. And then we'd look at the activity on the ground. And then if it's safe, the plane would do a, like an emergency landing and leave me there for a couple of days and then come and fetch me after some time. But on this particular trip, I had Anton, my son, um, Richard Preston, Dave Wally. Yeah, those were the guys who were with me. And we were on this trip and Rita said to me, uh, Anton, had just our son, just finished, finished matric. He f- uh, had this call of God in his life for years and he just felt he's not going to study. And So after matric, he came into ministry and So, his first official trip in ministry, he came with me to Sudan. And there was, I always said to them, there's about a 95% chance that you'll never get back alive because it's full on warfare. And Rita said, But how how can you take Anton, a young man, young boy, into warfare like that if there's a possibility to die? And I said to Rita, I'd rather see my son die. In action, doing the work of God, than to him to be uh, him to die, just as a sti- sti- statistic, uh, not knowing what was to, what was about to happen on that trip. So uh, we we couldn't find any any one any any aircraft uh, or any pilot. No, nope, they were all too afraid to go. But eventually, we found a, a, a Russian pilot by the name called Smirnov, and Smirnov was. He managed to pinch a, a airplane from Russia it was an Antonov and with this Antonov he was flying he, what they do what they did at the time they would they would get some of the old planes in Russia fly them into Africa and they fly them until there's nothing left and then they would just go back and fetch another one so he had this Antonov and we found him and he said no no you've got no problem you flies fly us into Sudan not knowing as to what was about to happen there but we dropped us there and he had to go further north for a few days. So at a specific point of time, he was going to come back to fetch us. And while we, you know, we were there, the first little thing a day, as we arrived, we, uh, it's hot. You, know, you get temperatures of over 50, 24 hours a day. Uh, it's very hot. And so you know, they were, the guys who were with me were not a very, uh, familiar with that. So Anton wanted to go and have a, just wash himself we had a little bucket there, and some grass around, little, that was our bathroom, so he was inside, and he's was busy washing, and the next moment, um, firing started, and, and this first time, I thought to myself, you know, these young boys, they, they when they're young like this, they become, they, now they're men, they, they don't need the dad anymore, but that day, when the fighting started, I'm telling you, he ran so quickly, he just wanted to be with me, and he's standing there, he, he was in a, he was in a state, and and here comes a father with a boy, it's about that tall. And he was carrying this boy like this, hanging over the feet there and the head here. And he was lifeless. And the father came and he knelt before us and he said, This is my son. I don't know what is going on with him, but please pray for him. And I, I still went down on my knees like this and we were going to pray for this boy. Dave Wally, standing there, he had some medical that Experience, but he had his hand on his, on the head of this little boy like this, and uh, just before he started to pray Dave, Dave took his hand off and it's, it was f- covered with blood, and he said, Henny uh, this boy um, you know he was he was sweating his blood came out i, I don 't know what happened to him, but Dave checked to see if there's any life and he said there 's nothing i 'm not I'm not, I don't know whether he's deep unconscious or whether he's dead already, but we prayed for him and nothing happened. And the father stood up again. He walked out, not further than that, that uh, the door over there, uh, behind the little, there's a little, also some little grass uh, shelter and he walked in there. The next moment, the father came back and next to him was this little boy and he walked. Yeah. And I don't know whether he was dead. I don't know what happened, but here's Anton. And he sat there his eyes like this. This is what God is doing. So we were on this trip. We are busy there. And we saw God moving in a miraculous way. Came towards the end of our time and uh, we're waiting now for Smirnov to come. But there's no Smirnoff. And as we sit there, we've run out of water. We had no more food left. And it was that morning and he was supposed to arrive in the morning. And we come towards uh, late afternoon. We're still waiting there. Anton... He looked at me and he said, Dad, uh, so when is it a matter of life and death? I said, Anton, it becomes a matter of life and death when you're dead. You're not dead yet. We, you'll have to wait. Uh, but we went back to our camp, started to pitch our tents and stuff to settle in for the night. And as we were busy pitching the tent, we could hear this, uh, this plane coming in and it was Smirnov. So he landed. What happened was he was captured by the by the enemy somewhere else, and he managed to escape with his plane, and he came back. And on his way, uh, as he arrived there, he was he was he was shot. He was he was in a mess, and he said, hey, he's not coming back to this country again. He wants to get out of this country." And uh, now, this international law that you cannot come into airspace of another country during that time. So. It was after six, it was six o'clock, and uh, we are we already late. We can't get into, back into Kenya. I said to him, But we can't get into Kenya. What are we going to do? But he doesn't want to be in that region anymore. All he wanted was to get back to where it's more safe. He said, But there's a UN, United Nations airstrip, and he's going to try and make an emergency landing there, uh, which is closer to the Kenya border. And uh, so we. we uh, we agreed to that, we, now we're flying. And uh, on our way there, what happened was the, the plane, you know, there were two pilots and they had two GPSs you know, on the planes and the, they were not synchronized. The, uh, and it's, it's pitch black, it's like 9 o'clock that night. And uh, as we were coming in, he's trying to see where, you know, where to go. And uh, the other pilot became anxious. Because they, it was two different readings, and um, they, you know, you could see they were worried, not not knowing what to do, and just then, this little emergency siren came on, that the plane lost altitude, and we were starting to drop, to lose uh, altitude, we we're coming down, and we just then, as it, as this happened, I could see down below there's a little light, and. Uh, and Smirnoff thought that this could be the sign of the, the runway because, you know, you can't land a plane at night time with no lights, no runway. And it's thick, thick acacia bush. So he thought that this is the only option. We, either that or we're going to crash anyhow. So we came down, and here's Anton. He's sitting there next to Richard. Um, they have, they're sitting on, a, on the floor on a bag. There's no safety belts. There's nothing. He's just... And Anton... And he started to pray, and he said, "Lord Jesus, for whatever I've ever done in my life, please forgive me." And he started to pray in tongues. And I looked at this boy. and thought, "You know, he's done. His life only has started, and he's, we're going to die together tonight." But the next moment, the the, the pilot, he thought they were still close to the ground, but he. Um, I think there was a mistake. but The plane lost the altitude and it came with the nose and the wing first and it hit the ground. And the impact was so big that we went into the air again, we missed a couple of big acacias and it landed. And as it, it there was no explosion and as it stopped, it was all quiet. I thought, hey, this is, this is heaven. We've made it at last. And then there were some a couple of children in the plane with us, and they messed themselves up. I said, Hey, heaven doesn't smell like this, man. <laughs> but, no, but now the plane, we know that he's going to explode, and I, I said, hey guys, we, we must get out of this plane, but he didn't explode. We got everyone out. There were no major injuries, but um, we had no water, we had nothing. They were in such shock, and the uh, that 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 light that we saw was whether it was a human being, whatever it was, whether it was an angel, I will not, I can't tell you. But I remember I said to this, to this person, I said, we need water, and where can we find water? And all I know is, he just pointed. He said, you go in that direction. It's pitch black. It's war zone. Just go in that direction. You you'll find water. And I took the water bottles and I started to go and I. I, I don't know for how long I've gone in the dark with no light, and the next moment, I walked into a steel pump, you know, you don't you know those ones that you can pump like that and I walked into this thing uh, I know in Sudan they've got what they have, have, have a parasite called guinea worm, it grows up to 12 foot long in you, if you get that parasite from the water I, I thought, tonight we'll deal with the, paras- the guinea worm later on, but we need water and I start to pump that thing and water came out. I filled the, water, the containers. I said, but God, how do I get back to this plane? I, I've got no, no idea. Because when it's dark like this, you can't, you, and you're shocked like this. You don't know where to go. But I started to walk and I came right into the plane again. And here's old Smirnov, And uh, Smirnov is in such a mess. And I said to him, so what are we going to do now? Do now? Smirnov said in broken English, he said I've gone around the plane no oil leaks, it's fine we're going to fly it again <laughs> so, so now, you know, you th- if you go to Joburg and you see the, the, the taxis there in Joburg, they are hey, they, Smirnoff was on steroids like a taxi driver <laughs> as we uh, at the best, the best time to attack is before, before sun, sunrise or sunset at, at night time, and I in, I knew that they're gonna, there's going to be an investigation. They're going to check us out. And so Smirnov was one ahead. we in this plane. And he, you know, you need a runway that's morally straight if you want to take off. With that Antonov, he went like that. We took off and we, we, we flew a couple of minutes and we entered the Kenyan airspace. We landed at this little airport called Lokachokyo. And as we landed there, if you go to Lakuchok here today, our airplane still sits on the side of the, r- of the runway. It is there to remind us of what God did. But we got back that day and uh, Rita took, fetch us from, aer- from the airport in South Africa and she said to Anton so are you, again? Are you going again? He said, yes mom. I've already put my name down. I'm going. But it's with this, that when we have made a surrender, we've committed ourselves to Jesus, that He will take us and we will be overwhelmed. And so we, we've done this. And a number of years ago, you know, sometimes, guys, we, you've got this life to live. And only what you've done with Jesus, that's what's going to last. The reason why we are here this morning is not just to listen to stories Want to just share with you that Jesus is alive. I was busy training guys in in Mozambique into in a war zone. Took me a couple of years to train them and they were on this particular occasion there were seventy two of us and war broke out there. And of the seventy two people in that group, only two of us survived. All seventy guys. Took years to, to train them. They died next to me. And you look at life and you say, God, uh, what God has been so gracious to us. We can get so overwhelmed with small little things, petty things, not realizing that the life that God has given us, it's a life that can count. And that really made an impact on my life. But another time, I was also in Sudan, the guy who was to He was the president's bodyguard. Um, He was with me for a number of years, and the guy who was head of intelligence used to be with me as well. But this this same guy, the president's bodyguard, in the end, his heart was impacted by the wrong things, and so he had a, uh, with a group of guys, had a price out on my head. And um, he was caught eventually and put in prison. And when I arrived in Sudan, and they summons me in the, to this court. And as I arrived in this court, the place was packed with people. There were lots of people outside. It was like about to break out in another war because of what happened. And the judge who was there um, started, he didn't give me any, t- any chance to defend myself. He, he sentenced me to prison he immediately. He said, How come this guy, his name is Abram, how come Abram is in jail and you're not in jail? said, I've sentenced you to prison now. And uh, I said to him, you know, I, I accepted prison. I will go. It's not, a, it's not a problem. But one thing I would like to just in my defense say that for the last 18 years I've been here, uh, by the orders of the president, I've never seen you anywhere. Uh, today you're, you're here as a judge. But at the same time, need to just remind you of this fact that there's gonna, there will be a day when you're going to stand before the judge of all the earth, and you'll have to give account for today. And the fear of God gripped this judge. And he immediately reversed the sentence. He said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I withdraw the sentence. You're not going to prison anymore. I said, no, no, it's not that simple. You're not <laughs> going to just, I'm not just going to be excused from this. First of all, dismiss the court. You and me, we're going to have a discussion today. And um, he dismissed the court and... Now I could speak to him. I, uh, yeah. But God, God came down at, at a point like that where the freedom, the, just the sense that God has placed me here in victory. I'm not here in defeat. I'm here to represent Jesus. And uh, the outcome of that was he asked me to go and speak to the crowd outside. And, and that day there was such um, unity, such You know, reconciliation of what God did. So, we've had this. And so, for years, and I I don't want to say this here in in this meeting, but it has not been an easy journey. Um, It's been a difficult one, but every step of the way, God has been with me. But also, something on the miraculous that I remember one year went to Zanzibar. And while we were in Zanzibar, I had two contacts uh, to go and preach the gospel there. And uh, as I was busy with the one little church on, on the island, busy preaching, the leader of, the, of this group, of the, of the church, stood up and he walked up to me and he said, we don't accept what you're preaching here. You're not welcome here. So I was chased away. And I thought, well, that's my first contact gone. I've got one more chance on the island. Uh, but that next morning I left in this minibus, but this pastor was also in the minibus. Just to where I was going to make sure that I wouldn't be welcome there. While I was in this minibus, it was so clear. God showed me the face of a man. He said, At this next place, I'm going to reveal my power. So I, I arrived at this place. It was just a little, some palm branches, not branches, logs that were lying there. Those were the seeds and the branches of the tree. That was the roof. Maybe 10, 15 people in that little gathering. And they were worshiping God, and while they were doing this, the leader of this group walked in. He had a uh, not a, he wasn't dressed like us, but he had like a a robe on, a gown on, white. And I observed something that in front his private parts was all it was massive. But he stood there, but he was in such agony that while while they were worshiping, he. He got, gripped him, and you could see that he was, he was in such pain. But as I looked at him, that was the face I saw in the, in the, in the vehicle. And I walked up to him, and, I, and now the worship stopped, and I started speaking to him. I prayed for him, and God touched him. Right there, it was a miracle. He was restored. He was healed. And he said, you know what happened was, the doctors have had cancer. The doctors have said, you must go home. There's nothing we can do for you. And that is how the work started on Zanzibar. It started with a miracle. And it's when, when we come to that, where God just come through in such a miraculous way. The thing I've, one of the testimonies that really touched me most was right at the very beginning of life, of, of, of ministry. Uh, first meeting was in a place called Pachastro. And uh, that night, it was in a little corrugated iron building. Um, that's my first official trip. Now I've, I've studied theology. I've got the T-shirt. Uh, <laughs> walked in there. I've, I've always, I've longed for the miraculous, and I, I've read about the miraculous, but I've never seen it. And so, in this meeting, I asked for people if there's anyone that's sick. It was winter time. And all those with colds, so they came forward. And right from the dark, as we were about to close the meeting, and out of the dark, in the corner, I could see in the shadow, there's someone coming up. But in front of that, there was a smallest figure. And it was this old lady that came forward with an escort. She was in her 70s, and she had no pupils in her eyes. She was born with no sight. It was, just, it was all just blank. Just not because of, you know, sometimes. It, but there's just no, no pupils. And she came and stood before me. I was horrified. I thought, I've, I've never seen anything like this. What, what have we, I felt like running away. I thought, no, this is not for me. But I felt God spoke to me and he, just to remind me that this is it's about Him. And I remember I put my hands over her like this, and, uh, but I didn't close my eyes. I was so overwhelmed by this. I looked at her, and as while praying for her, I saw those pupils, and they started to grow. And it was the first time in her life that she saw. And I've, often I've said to people that for that lady, first time in her life that she saw someone, and she saw the most beautiful face because she looked at <laughs> me. <laughs> but we serve, we serve the God of the miraculous. And then... For us here this morning, where you sit, you think that maybe you are not, you know, I'm not good enough. I'm insignificant. Don't listen to the lie of the devil. Um, I've also been there. But something happened here. It's Jesus, because only what I've done with Jesus is a thing that's going to last. And so I've, I've gone through there's, I think, 53 or 54 countries in Africa. And God has, has enabled me to go to all of them with the exception of maybe three of those countries where I've put my foot, feet in and I've preached the gospel. And today there are lots of churches there. How it happened, I can't tell you, but I know there's one thing. It's when we become obedient to the Holy Spirit. And uh, often... When God would open a door for me to go to a country, I would never read about that country, the history of the country, because if you do read that, what's going on there, you'll never go there. Uh, you'll be too intimidated by this. But on this one particular occasion, I was in, uh, in Kenya and working there. God opened the door and the, started, the work started to grow. And next thing is, God, I felt God said to me, you go from here to Ethiopia never been in Ethiopia, and so I, I was in this plane going to Ethiopia, arrived at in Addis, uh, also late afternoon, dark already, and I not know where, where do I go from here? But there were some buses parked outside, and I felt the Holy Spirit said to me, you get into that, one or, get in one of the buses, and just go with that. And you know, the thing inside you, when you still try to take a shortcut. I looked at the the one that's the most beautiful bus. I thought maybe I'll just get into this bus. I felt God said to me, "No, not the most beautiful one. The most ugly one. Get into that bus." So I'm stuck in this bus, and the bus is going to a place called Debrecen. It is the headquarters of the army during the war that they had between with Eritrea, and that's where all the maneuvers took place. And as I arrived in Debrecen that night, the, I didn't know anything. I saw this one house, went in there, and then only discovered that it was a brothel. Now, I'm here in a brothel, and you know what it's like if you've never been there, but it's it's not a pleasant place to be in. So I slept there that night. Next morning, I got up from there. I don't know where to go, but I started to walk down the street. And as I walked down the street, I felt God said to me, you go into this house. I went into that house, and, and this kitchen, around the table, there were some men and they seated there, they, they all quiet. I thought, I don't know these guys, I don't know anything about them, but there's one thing I do know, if you want to know what is in someone's heart, upset them and see what comes out. So I thought, I'm just going to say something that will offend them and see what jumps out and then I can take it from there. And as I spoke to them, the guy who was the leader of the group called Timberu, he looked at me, he said, you can say anything you want, because three months ago, God spoke to us, he said, get yourself into this house, because this, that specific morning, a white guy is going to walk in there, and you need to listen to what he's saying. And that's, that's how the work started in Ethiopia. But come you know, the end of the time in Ethiopia, I said, God, I don't know where to go from here. And I was standing at this, also outside this brothel that morning, and here comes a girl, and she started walking up, and she came straight towards me. I thought, hey, no, wait, this is, this is a funny girl. I, I need to be very careful. I didn't even want to greet her, but she introduced herself, and she, she said to me, my name is Tanai. I only saw it twice in my life, and Tanai came and said, "Felt God of... Have called me. She she told me the story how that she was used to. She was an Ethiopian lady living in Ethiopia and was badly mistreated by her husband. She fled and ended up in Egypt in Cairo. And there in Cairo, that's where she met Jesus. And also so clear, God spoke to her and said, "You must go back to Debrazite to that brothel, and you're going to see a man standing there by the wall. You take that man, take him with you to Cairo." And that's how I ended up in Cairo. But as I came into Cairo, I didn't know where to go. And I'm in this, you know, it's all arab speaking people. They speak another language, man. And I walked in there, and in this one little shop, uh, well, not, not like a grocery shop, but it's an office, and here's this big Egyptian. He sat up behind his chair. His name is Edward. Today, his son son and his son and his daughter are both in Cornerstone. You know, this Edward sat there and I said to him, I've just come because you are going to organize all the meetings. I'm coming to preach the gospel here. And this Egyptian looked at me and said, yes, I will do it for you. Now he doesn't know me. But not knowing that this the security police, the safety guys, they were watching him because he was a big suspect and I'm going to this chief guy that the government are looking for and he's going to be the guy organizing the meetings. So, but it just happened that his wife Mary was the best interpreter in the country. And she ended up as she's standing next to me and, and she's interpreting and I, God took me back to a time he said to me, before you're 50 you'll be throughout Africa with the gospel. But I remember I was standing there as I came into Egypt to preach the gospel in the, in the street there's this lady you know they've got this outfit and you just see the eyes like that and as I looked at the eyes uh, we had a lot to do with the slave trade and I could tell that this was a slave because they were blue eyes and I was so taken by this and I felt God say to me from now on you're going into the Middle East and but now I'm here's Mary and she's interpreting for me and the work exploded in Cairo since then. But that couple was a couple that took me into the Middle East. And it was, it was so incredible. And some of those countries I've been to, uh, I remember the first trip into Jordan. Um, also, you know, you go into, as, as, when you get into an airport, you stand out like a sore thumb. They, they, everyone know, you know, they've, they've checked you out already, but they knew I was coming in. So they, they followed me and they the room that we uh, they bucked and the guy who was going to interpret was a teacher but every while I'm busy preaching speaking, he's disappearing and I thought what's going on with this guy? And he would go behind the security police waiting for me just to mention Jesus and he said have you got enough evidence to, to, to capture him, to arrest him and I said no man they became highly offended because while I'm busy speaking, I felt God said to me, you don't mention anything about Jesus. I refer to the church as a family. So I spoke about this family. <laughs> this guy is not mentioning Jesus. And so they, they left. And only when they left, I could speak about Jesus. But now I'm going, I'm starting to travel, and I came to this one little place. And it's like a museum. And what happened was, that was a church that was built, a building that was built in AD 64. And on the floor, they've, over all the many years, the floor level have come up, risen, and they've decided one day they were going to go down, right down to the original floor. When they came to the original floor, they, on that with mosaic tiles was the then what they known world, not like the map of the world that we know today. And around that map was the missionary journeys of Paul. Because the church then... Had an understanding of the apostolic two thousand years later, coming back into this place and just behind the chariot in victory, God has given an opportunity to preach the gospel and went throughout Jordan, even to where that you remember the swines went into the sea, there we planted the church, and Jesus walked there to be able to walk there and say. Here, God has given an opportunity in our day and age to preach this gospel. And I've, I've gone from there as far as towards to, to Turkey and ended up in a, the first church where they were first called Christians in Antioch. It's called Antakya today. And that church is a cave. And that's where the Holy Spirit moved in such a way where Barnabas was. And he went and he looked for Paul, which is about like from here to, Derbe, to, to Cape to, uh, to Joburg. And no airplane, he went and searched for Paul and brought him back. I've often thought to myself, I'd go there and I'd sit outside. What with these guys, because Peter was there, revival broke out, today it's still known as the Silk Route, the main Silk, way, silk, way, silk Route way. What would they be talking about? It's like Paul saying, I must preach this gospel. This Jesus who I persecuted... This is what I'm doing, the mandate I've got. I would sit there and I said, God, I'm here today with this message still burning in my heart. Guys, I want to encourage you today. If your life is not counting for Jesus, if you sit here today and say, you know, I I would love that. And just at the spur of the moment, don't just react to that. But what is God saying to you? If, if you need prayer today, and you say, God, I, I need you. I need you to come, because my life needs to count for you. Don't look at the person next to you. Allow the Holy Spirit to do surgery in your life, because every day that we live, you don't know whether you're going to see tomorrow. I've had people around me, they're still breathing now, and tonight, because of the circumstances, they buried, they're buried, they gone. We don't we don't take life for granted, we don't take the opportunities that God gives us for granted. Make use of those opportunities. So, if I don't want to even go any further on that, but if you feel that you need prayer today, maybe you you you've drifted away. You're not where you're supposed to be, or you've not you've you've never given Jesus an opportunity in your life, or you want to make you say, God, I. My life is going to count for you, my family we 're going to count for you i 'm responding to that this morning, so I'd, you don 't need to stand up or anything like this. right where you are, if you don 't mind we 're going to close our eyes we 're going to pray and human business with God, and at the end, you feel you 'd like to speak to us. Um, Colin, it would it be all right for them for the guys to come to you. You are welcome to come to me as well. We would love to pray with you. but this is an opportunity for you, where you can actually say, Jesus, for long enough, I've had it my own way. I've been been busy with the wrong things, but I need you in my life. So let's just pray. Our Father, thank you for these men. Thank you, Father, that you are here and that you are moving by your Spirit. Father, for a time such as this, you've called us. Father, every one of these men are special in your sight. You've kept them. You've saved them. Father, may their lives count for you. Jesus, just come. Open their hearts. Open their eyes to see. Moved by your Holy Spirit. Father, help them to make adjustments right now in your name. We worship you. We exalt your name. Come, Lord Jesus. It is about you. There is no one like you. We are overwhelmed by your presence. We thank you, Jesus, for just the fact that we can be here today. You have blessed us. Father, we love you. Amen.